Well, hello, uh, welcome, and uh, this is the HP Lovecraft Book Club, and you are listening to part two of my review of the horror at Red Hook. So if you're just joining me on this podcast, I urge you to go back and listen to at least the first uh, wind, the first episode of where I give some of my thoughts on the horror at Red Hook, look at uh, a little bit of an essay I wrote on HP Lovecraft a number of years ago, and um, yeah, that's... Uh, that's where you should start or even go back farther and listen to some of the previous episodes where I dig into Lovecraft's work from the very beginning from his juvenilia to his early nonfiction writing his earliest stories published stories uh, and I've been working my way through the works of H.P. Lovecraft and here we are into the into the massive middle section where some of his greatest works were written but we're beginning with uh, The Horror at Red Hook one of my favorite H.P. Uh, Lovecraft stories, but also one of his most problematic. Uh, if you're kind of following some of the 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 significant and maybe necessary backlash to to Lovecraft's work, I would you know even the article I wrote is part of that backlash, really focusing on really trying to analyze and dissect and maybe turn on its head the racial politics of 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 H.P. Lovecraft. This is the work people go to as, you know, saying this is one of his most overtly racist works or his most overtly anti-immigrant work. And it is that. Uh, it's hard to deny that uh, in this uh, in this story. But nevertheless, I think it's one of my favorite stories of his because it does such an amazing job of connecting so many of Lovecraft's, I think, key interesting themes. You know, he has some people really dig the cosmic horror aspect of H.P. Lovecraft. I really dig the... The stuff about the Atlantic history, and I think this, along with the case of Charles Dexter Ward, are, is his most Atlantic of of works. So I've been watching uh, HBO's Lovecraft Country. I'm about seven episodes in. At first, I was a little bit, uh, I don't know. I, I actually read the book, so I, I, I'm familiar with the book, and and I felt the book was fine. I, I preferred the 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 other book that's often cited as one of these kind of new takes on Lovecraft's racial politics, the, the Ballad of Black Tom. I like that little book a little bit better than Lovecraft Country. But I certainly found it interesting. Uh, I think I was taken back maybe by its episodic nature, and the TV series has that same episodic nature, and it, it kind of works in that, that format. Um, I think there's a little bit too much of like the brand down, uh, Dan Brownish kind of mystery, and you got to have the right code and put the right thing in the right thing, and, you know to open this door to get this artifact and and it's like all these clues are laid out it's a little bit contrived in that way but there's a few really great episodes i think there's an episode with uh body shifting um uh there's like racial swapping and, and transgender kind of swapping of identities there's a great episode with a with a fox spirit uh set in the korean war so i think there's a lot of good stuff there and maybe someday in the future I'll, I'll do a more systematic look you know, if you listen to this podcast, you know I don't really do the art, don't do the movies, don't do that stuff. I'm not, I'm not really. I always say maybe I'll do it, but I but I rarely, if ever, actually do that. Um, there's plenty of people on the internet dissecting these these TV shows and movies that I don't think I really need to do it. But I don't know. Maybe it's worth it. Maybe it's worth talking about. So, anyways, let's uh, jump in. Uh, where did I leave off? So I looked at, I gave a kind of my broad view and my overall interpretation of the horror at Red Hook last time. And I looked at the first two parts, uh, which really set up the characters, uh, the two characters, uh, Malone and the and New York City. Well, Red Hook. Red Hook itself is a character. Uh, surely it's the villain of the story. 
There's other villainous figures, but it's Red Hook itself. It's the location that's the true villain of the story, and Lovecraft spends much of part two, uh, chapter two of this uh, story, going into that part of it. So that's where we'll pick up today. Um, so part three introduces us to, I guess, what would be the third main character in the story. It's actually surprising. This The audiobook for this is about an hour long. The story itself is longer than most of Lovecraft's stories. He wrote so many short ones, but along his greats, it's... When you compare it to its greats, it's fairly short, you know. Uh, he never wrote really, really long works. But this one is, uh, it, it surprised me when I went back to, to read it because it, it felt, I, I remembered it as meatier, as thicker, as, as longer, as a little bit more of a, of a something tough to get through. Um, just a bigger chunk of the book than uh, when I read it this time. It's like, wow, that really went by quick. And it's more striking when you see he spends almost half the story just laying out these these three characters, Red Hook, Malone, and now the third major character, Robert Sidem. Robert Sidem. He's the protagonist, if you will, because he's the one who really pushes forward the the story. He's I guess he's the 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 human villain of the of the story. Although I still hold by I still hold that that Red Hook itself is the villain overall. Um, so we learn that it's the case of Sidem that that led to Malone's. Uh, mental breakdown later on in Rhode Island and it's the uh, it's like his final case in New York uh, now what do we know about him well we know he's Dutch so this isn't the first Dutch family that Dutch Dutch person we met we we, we ran into the Dutch in the lurking fear um, and there the focus was really on the degeneration of a family and Sidem it's he's not a lurking he's not a he's not a chud like you have in the lurking fear but he is nevertheless part of a declining family. Um, we're told Sidem was a lettered recluse of ancient Dutch family possessed originally of barely independent means and inhabiting a spacious but ill-preserved mansion, which his grandfather had built in Flatbush when the village was little more than a pleasant group of colonial cottages, end quote. Now, obviously, Lovecraft is himself as part of a declining quasi-aristocratic family. Uh, or part of the American aristocracy of New England, but has, you know the family has fallen on hard times. It's not surprising he writes about these things. Um, but Sidem is also tied to the sea in a couple ways. He's obviously tied to the sea through his family. He's uh, reformed Dutch immigrants. Um, but but there's also a little bit more of a subtle connection to the sea. Now Red Hook itself is connected to the sea very consciously to the Atlantic by immigration but Sidem itself is quote Sidem had read and brooded for some six decades except for a period of generation before when he had sailed for the old world and remained there out of sight for eight years end quote so he co he leaves he leaves by sea and he comes back with some he comes back changed in a way all right so this is something you'll sort of see where we've seen before and we'll see sort of again in Lovecraft is that you know, the sea is this conduit of knowledge, right? I think most strongly you see this in the, the, the Shadow over Innsmouth, where the main, the main kind of villain of that story, who's in the background of the story, in the history, he goes out to the sea, comes back with this cult of Dagon, converts the town. And of course, if you read that story, you know what happens because of that. So he becomes a bit of a rec recluse, if he already was a bit of a recluse, but he becomes more of one after this. He kind of get, becomes obsessed with his library. He has this massive library of tattered books of ponderous, archaic, and vaguely repellent aspect. Um, and 
there's a really cool image here of because he's fairly old he's like 60 right so he's been around for a while but we actually get this image of new york kind of building around him and red hook in particular building around his mansion which is just a great image i think of of this kind of urban sprawl uh you know so if this is set let's say 1920 you know cite him was born then in in 1860 or so and so if you can think of how big new york city was in 1860 and how it really expanded over the course of the post-civil war era it's true that's what happened but it sort of grows around him and meanwhile he just is in his in his library he's fairly well known in town but people just kind of snicker at him and laugh at him and gossip about him and are a bit freaked out by 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 sight him now we already know that malone the the cop is is into the occult himself so he kind of knows sight him through like hearing rumors of his interest in the coppola um so both of these characters Sidon and malone are into the occult in various ways sight him a little bit more directly malone a bit more maybe with a little bit more curiosity but he's not kind of jumping in full you know with both feet the way sight him does um but over the next paragraph, we get a lot of Sidem's sort of physical, mental, social decline. It, it does sort of remind me of Joseph Kerwin. Again, uh, you know, in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, a story we're going to spend a lot of time talking about in the future. But there you have a character, uh, Joseph Kerwin, who really starts to physically get weirder and weirder and he gets older and he doesn't age and people think he's really bizarre and he makes efforts to try to fit in like he tries to marry a younger woman he tries to be enter respectable society a little bit he sort of tries to pretend side doesn't seem to do that so much side just sort of embraces his decline as he gets more and more obsessed with the the occult quote he had been growing shabbier and shabbier with the years and now prowled around like a veritable mendicant seen occasionally by humiliated friends in subway stations or loitering on the benches around the borough hall in conversation with groups of swarthy, evil-looking strangers, uh, end quote. Of course, the immigrants are being are part of this. Um, and it gets so bad that the police start to like, keep an eye on him. And you know, detectives actually begin to follow him and hear strange sounds, strange uh, chants, uh, the prattering of more than one person's feet behind closed doors. All these kinds of weird stuff, but they can't really nail anything that he's doing that's really illegal. He's just being really creepy and weird. Um, in fact, the police presence in this whole part of the story, in fact, all of the horror at Red Hook, it's not surprising one of our main characters is a policeman. But as was established earlier in the story, the police attitude towards Red Hook in this uh, fantasy version of the, t of, the, of, the, of the neighborhood is that the police sort of lock it away and, and just keep an eye on it you know, wall it off and, and, and watch it, but don't actually do anything to suppress it. But it's through this keep an eye on sight him and his weird behavior and his apparent relation to some kind of weird secret societies that Malone gets involved in, in the case. So that's how he gets into it. Quote, the law had watched the sight him action with interest and in many instances called upon to aid the private detectives. In this work, it developed that Sidem's new associates were among the blackest and most vicious criminals of Red Hook's devious lanes, and that at least a third of them were known and repeated offenders in the manner of thievery, disorder, and the importation of illegal immigrants. So we got here, in this part of the story, uh, a common theme here, and that is human trafficking. Uh, we got 
the blood libel stuff is here for very strongly because kid, you know, children are being kidnapped. But there's a broader global kidnapping network that's suggested here. There's the importation of immigrants illegally, illegal immigration. Now, historical context here is is relevant. This story was written. Let me get the exact date um, for you. Uh, written in August 1925, published in 1927. So, so it was written when he. I guess he's still New York at that time when it's written, but published a little bit later. Um, this is one year after the National Origins Act was passed, five, four or five years after the first Quota Act was passed. Uh, these are the first like national, well, you had the Chinese Exclusion Act earlier, but except for that, this was the first real national broad-based banning of immigrants. Um, prior to this, U.S. borders were pretty much open to anyone who could get off a boat and maybe could read a few words didn't have, you know, pass some quarantine, they would be allowed into the country, often given citizenship fairly quickly if they if they qualified. So for you know, American the American industry needed labor, and there was a steady supply of it of, from peasants of Europe. It wasn't until after World War One, and you get this rise of nativism. Of course, you always have nativism in American history, but it was never strong enough to really command national policy till the twenties. And, you know, this is one aspect of the, of the cultural wars of the 20s, which I sometimes refer to in this, uh, in this podcast. I think that's such a big part of 1920s American cultural history. Uh, urban rule clash, immigrant native clash, uh, the emergence of African-American activism being part of that culture war, too. Um, you know, if you think about the Harlem Renaissance and all that. So there's a lot of things going on here that are seeming disruptive to someone like Lovecraft, who is such a strong social conservative. Anyways, the, the point with this story, though, is he's talking about illegal immigration at a time when, when immigration restrictions were really just beginning, right? So, uh, but they're being smuggled in. And some of these people are Asian, so we get a little bit of a yellow peril narrative here as well, uh, where Lovecraft writes, Indeed, it would not have been too much to say that the old scholars' particular circle coincided almost perfectly with the worst of the organized cliques and smuggled, which smuggled aboard certain nameless and unclassified Asian dredges wisely turned back by Ellis Island, unquote. Um, now, are these East Asians? I, you know, not really. It's a broader Asian population. He mentioned Syrians. Uh, I think he, Kurds are mentioned in this story. So it's kind of a, a Central Asian or, or kind of the Middle Asian population. But it's a mixed. It's a motley crew anyways. It doesn't really matter where these people are from, but they're from Asia. They're motley. They have weird ideas. They're Zoroastrians or something. And... You know, they're bringing in new religions. And then get back to the historical context here. Why is nativism so strong in the 1920s? Well, it seems pretty clear it's a backlash to the new immigrants of the late 19th, early 20th century, which didn't come from traditional areas like Scandinavia, Britain, uh, and Germany. I think Irish by this time had already sort of been, you know, granted whiteness by American culture over a few generations. But now you got new immigrants who are Roman Catholic. That's problematic. That's seen as like a foreign, weird faith to many Protestant Americans coming from different areas like Italy, Eastern Europe or whatever. And here you're just sort of adding to that, that mix with uh, this kind of more amorphous Asian population. But they're bringing in something like a primordial kind of Persian or Middle Eastern religion, something like... Uh, Maybe it's, it's, it's like a Mesopotamian faith, perhaps. 
Now you find out by the end of the story, it, it seems they're trying to awaken or revive or have some sort of weird marriage with Lilith, uh, which is kind of a proto, uh, like Hebrew Mesopotamian deity. Uh, certainly, it's in Jewish tradition. So, anyways, um, yeah, this this whole section, chapter three, is really getting at. Uh, Sidem's connection to the occult and his increasing decline as he got deeper and deeper into these religions, these rituals, and this kind of hybrid society. And it's all mixed together. That's why I love this story, is he mixes the knowledge, the, the networks of vernacular networks of knowledge, mixes that with uh, working class cultures and working class communities, immigration, the Atlantic, the sea. Uh, you got racial politics here too. It's all sort of mixed together in such a fascinating little story. I mean, by and large, what's overarching all of this is a marine conspiracy. This is the actual language that Lovecraft uses, marine conspiracy. Uh, then that's what the police are really after. They're trying to break down this network of, of smugglers and criminals. Quote, most of the people here conjectured were of Mongoloid stock, originated somewhere in or near Kurdistan. And Malone cannot help recalling that Kurdistan is the land of the Yazidis, last survivors of Persian devil worshippers. However, this might have been the stir of the Sidem investigators made. It's certain that these unauthorized newcomers were flooding Red Hook in increasing numbers, entering through some marine conspiracy unreached by revenue officers and Harper police, overturning Parker Place and rapidly spreading up the hill. Just this, this imagery of this creeping population of, of illicit migrants uh, crawling, you know, infesting Red Hook. It's, it's, it's really... Well done here. Super racist, really anti-immigrant, but, you know, that's... I just think no story does better at getting at the heart of Lovecraft's vision of of, immig of the immigrant. His letters go into this same kind of stuff in a little bit more of a theoretical way, but this story makes it a palpable, palpable horror. And I, and I think, as I talked about in the letters, he's able to do this in his letters as well, even just letters to his friends, writing about the sounds and the smells and the, the people, his neighbors and really write it as a horror story. But anyways, part three, a really good introduction to our, our I guess our main human villain, Sidem. Uh, so then, uh, let's move on to chapter four. So chapter four sort of continues uh, Lovecraft's description of the, of the cults, of its activities. We get actually a little, quite a lot more detail about the underground networks of impoverished people. Uh, what kind of jobs they do and how they're sort of attached to this this uh, maritime or this marine conspiracy, as he puts it. Um, so, but it's all through like Malone's investigation. We don't get actually Malone ever being a detective here. Uh, it's it's like part of the story that's I think missing or is under the surface. We get kind of his findings, uh, but we don't get much of him actually doing the day to day. It's not really from his point of view. Uh, it's. And that might be a weakness of the story. Maybe it'd be a different story if it was all told from Malone's point of view. Instead, it's all, you know, this is sort of what Malone discovered when he dug around. Uh, and I don't I think Lovecraft ever really wrote in, an investigator story like that. But, um, but whatever. Uh, we learn what Malone finds. And what Malone finds is this marine conspiracy. And it, there's more detail on it as we get into part four. And we also, this intersects then with more of Sidem's story. Here's what he writes. Malone threw 
On ostentatious rambles, carefully casual conversations, well-timed offers of hip pocket liquor, and judicious dialogues with frightened prisoners, learned many isolated facts about the movements whose aspects had become so menacing. The newcomers were indeed Kurds, but of a dialect obscure and puzzling to exact philology. Such of them as worked lived mostly as dockhands and unlicensed peddlers, though frequently serving in Greek restaurants and tending corner newsstands. Most of them, however, no, had no viable means of support and were obviously connected with the underground underworld pursuits of which smuggling and bootlegging were the least indes indescribable. Uh, they had come in from steamships, apparently tramp freighters, and been unloaded by stealth on moonless nights and rowboats which stole under a certain wharf and followed a hidden canal to a secret subterranean pool besides the house. End quote. So this is how the people are getting in and how they're being smuggled in and their connection to these dock workers and other suspicious folks on the on the borderlands of this of this society of this red hook community there's also ties to gangsters ties to uh just other groups it seems it's a vast conspiracy lovecraft is trying to suggest here and malone is finding there's how deep it runs in in uh, red hook society uh, we also get a more specifically into the kidnapping waves this is where the kidnapping wave is first directly mentioned and discussed and it's something that Malone digs out, but kidnapping, especially kidnapping proper Anglo uh, New Yorkers and their children becomes more publicly known. So these kidnappings begin, uh, which becomes well known throughout New York. But at this very t same time, we then start to see uh, Sidehem's revival. Uh, restoration and this way he does sort of parallel Kerwin a little bit because I mean Kerwin's problem is is he was like over 100 years old and everyone sort of knew that's really weird that he still looks like a 30 year old or 40 year old and and he's super old and so he just sort of kind of fakes it by presenting himself getting married trying to be in proper society so people won't be as freaked out by that but it's always another surface that he's super old Sidem is just someone who was looking old and disheveled and weird and at one point just starts to actually look better, actually looking literally younger, but also dressing better and kind of entering back into uh, into high society where he sort of belongs as a scion of a, of a somewhat prestigious, if, if, if obviously declining family. So then we're, t we're told two things happen that kind of come together and Malone sort of connects these two things or thinks they're related in a way. Um, and certainly our narrator connects them together. And one is Roderick Sidem gets married. So get it. It reminds me of Kerwin because Kerwin also is part of his effort to regain his respectability, marries uh, a, a younger woman. Um, here he marries a Miss Cornelia Gerderson of Bayside, a young woman of excellent position and distantly related to the elderly bridegroom-elect. Uh, so some distant, distant cousin or something. The other thing is they have a raid on a dance hall, right? So I pr presume it was connected to Prohibition or something. Uh, or the overall police investigation into these kidnappings. Yeah, this was connected to the kidnapping, who was seen in the basement window of one of these dance halls. Malone was part of this raid, and uh, they don't find anything. The entire building's kind of deserted when they come, but he finds these Greek transcriptions. And the, the tr translation of it is like this. O oh, friendly companion of night, who thou rejoicest in the bane of dogs and split blood, who wanderest in the midst of shades among the tombs, who longest for blood and bringer terror to mortals, Gorgol, Mormo, thousand-faced moon, look favorably upon our sacrifices. 
But he's not able to do much about this as a police. He's just a little bit freaked out by this. Um, now, meanwhile, the kidnapping of children accelerates and continues. And here it really does sound like the blood libel. Now, Saitim is not a Jew. He's obviously a, a Calvinist. He's from Reform background, from Dutch background. Nevertheless, it does... You know, this is what the blood libel was, right? The, it started, I think, in the Middle Ages... This belief by Christians that Jews stole, kidnapped Christian children and used them for uh, rituals, right? Uh, much of this was just anti-Semitism, but this idea that those people over there in that village or in that, that neighborhood have weird re religion, weird rituals that we don't understand. They're doing sacrifices and stuff. And, you know, of course, you, you do have sacrifices, at least ritual or uh, allegorical sacrifices throughout Jewish history. Um, they've been all kind of regularized, just like in Islam. Christianity, of course, famously sort of replaces all those sacrifices with <laughs> God's sacrifice of himself uh, in the crucifixion. So sacrifice is a part of the monotheistic religions. Uh, but nevertheless, when other religions embrace sacrifice, it tends to seem the mainstream religions really get freaked out about that. I remember when I was in Florida, there was a, when I was living in Florida, there was all these talk about like the Santeria and they would do these sacrifices in the house and leave dead bodies of chickens on the streets and stuff. And, you know, I think it happened. I think I saw some of those chickens on the street when I was biking around. But, you know, there's kind of a moral panic about this, this religion doing things that they shouldn't be doing when all these monotheistic traditions were doing sacrifices all the time throughout their throughout their so it, but my point is it's not that hard then to just kind of say well why not they're, they're they're weird so why not they're sacrificing children why not right um and certainly there's something like that going on here so it, it sort of ties to the blood libel a little bit that that's all i'm saying so eventually malone is able to uh be part of a raid on Sidehim's parker place house uh, the house he has and he's able to find more things not find children would find all other kinds of weird evidence like uh, paintings of monsters it's like pickman's model kind of paintings quote parodies on human outlines which cannot be described and then writing in greek roman and hebrew letters and this is fascinating uh he calls it alexandrian decadence and i don't think he uses the term alexandrian that much in his stories it shows up a few times but it shows up in a lot in his letters this is his go-to phrase for talking about like hybrid cultures, homogenized, maybe homogenized is the right term, but like uh, eclectic societies, heterodox society, heterodox societies, where you have a lot of different influences. And he always calls this Alexandrian, right? And there is a reason I like the Alexandrian, the Hellenistic age in history, is because of the very reason that Lovecraft seems to be a bit disgusted by it. And it's all that, the culture mixing, you know, how the Greek ideas intersected with with Egyptian beliefs or Mesopotamian beliefs. And you get this kind of uh, Greek-speaking philosophical culture, but they're so dis dis dislodged from the polis that they're able to kind of do new things. It's, I just think it's a really fascinating part of history. Uh, but of course, it's also important to note that the place that these people come from, came from, like Syria, Kurdistan, this was all the the... Alexandrian areas. These were the Hellenistic areas, heavily influenced by Greek culture. Um, 
So this chapter, chapter four, is really getting a little bit more into Malone's investigation. He reaches a bunch of dead ends. And obviously he's going to fail at the end of this story in breaking down this cult and finding out what Sidem's really up to and before it's too late. But the, the intersection here is this growing public clamor with the kidnappings and growing fear about, about the kidnappings. Um, so then in chapter five, we, we come to the, we, we, we come closer to the climax of the story, uh, which is the wedding of, of Sidehem to this woman, Miss Cornelia Gertison. So chapter five, it's a fairly short chapter. It just deals with uh, Sidehem's wedding and the aftermath. So uh, what happens here, it's, um, is Sidehem gets married and then they, him and his wife go off on a boat. And that night, they, sh- they end up dead, okay? And the wife's body is found, but she was murdered pretty clearly by strangulation. And her blood was taken. Um, now, there's a little bit of corruption and, and suspicion about, like, the undertaker and the, the medical examiner. There seems to have been people bought off or people were part of the conspiracy. So it's not entirely revealed, but, you know, Malone is able to figure out. It seems that, that her blood was taken. Um, no, the undertaker asked why they had drained off all of Mrs. Sidem's blood. He neglected to infirm that he had not done so, nor did he point out to the vacant bottle spaces on the rack. So th- there are actually these bottles that were f- apparently filled up with Mrs. Sidem's blood and then taken away, right? Now, as for Sidem's body, he's dead too, but his body vanishes. And how this was done is revealed later on in this chapter because uh, f- there's this, quote, well, I'll quote the section. Uh, Suddenly, the leader of the visiting mariners, an Arab with a hatefully negroid mouth, pulled forth in a dirty, dirty crumpled paper and handed it to the captain. It was signed by Robert Sidenham and bore the same, the following odd message. In case of sudden or unexplained accident or death on my part, please deliver me or my body unquestioningly into the hands of the bearer and his associates. Everything for me and perhaps for you depends on absolute compliance. Explanations can come later. Um, so this is uh, a central event in the story, the death of Sidem and his wife. And then this is going to lead us to the climax, which is going to be this really bizarre, surreal ritual that Malone walks into uh, and sees, which is going to involve the reanimation of, of Sidem. And depending on how you read it, his, his sort of marriage to, to Lilith, it, it seems that's what's going on here. So this leads us to chapter nine, which is this uh, final raid on the Sidem place and Malone's visions of this of this ritual. He seems to sort of enter into this other world. It's it's really the moment of cosmic horror in the story. Um, it's 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 a bit hard to describe because there's a lot of things going on. It's uh, you know all these strange monsters and like Pan makes an appearance and Lilith seems to make an appearance and you see Sidem's emerging, you know, animated, reanimated corpse, and you have the destruction of the buildings, and it's, it seems Sidem kind of pushes over a pillar, and the whole thing collapses all around Malone. It's kind of an amazing moment, uh, and, a, and, a, and a lot of weirdness going on here. Uh, I'll read a bit of it. Uh, As the chant closed, a general shout went up, and hissing sounds nearly drowned from the croaking of the cackled bass bass organ. Then a gasp from many throats and the babble of barked and bleated words. Lilith, great Lilith, behold the bridegroom. 
More cries and clamors of rioting and sharp clicking footfalls of a running figure. The footfalls approached and Malone raised himself to his elbows to look. The luminosity of the crypt, lately diminished and now slightly increased, and in that devil light there appeared the fleshing form of that which should not flee or feel or breathe, the glassy-eyed, gangrenous corpse of the corporal old man, now needing no support but animated by some infernal sorcery of the right just closed. After it raced, the naked, tittering, phosphorescent things that belonged on the craven pedestal and still farther behind panted the dark men and all the dread crew of sentient loathsomeness. The corpse was gaining on its pursuers and seemed bent on a definite object, straining with every rotting muscle towards the carved golden pedestal, whose necromantic importance was evidently so great. And this leads to the collapse of it. Now, all of this is presented in the next chapter, the final chapter of the, of the story, chapter 7, as, a, as a Malone's dream, or at least that's how he kind of reports on it, and that's how he uh, kind of makes sense of it. Um, it's kind of like uh, under the pyramids, and there's that trope of, oh, it was all a dream. It works... I mean, it works so well in Under the Pyramids because the narrator is Harry Houdini, who apparently this did not happen to. Um, it's just a story, but he can give it a, a veneer of truthfulness by, by saying, oh, it was all a dream, right? Maybe it was a dream, wink, wink, kind of thing. Same thing sort of happens here, but it's more like Malone just trying to coping with the impossibilities that he witnessed. But physically, things happened here. Like, the, the buildings collapse, right? The place is raided. It's destroyed. Eventually, Red Hook itself will be eradicated. So we get another important Lovecraftian theme at the end of the story, and that is forgetfulness and forgetting. Um, and that's what happens in Chapter 7. But the forgetting is incomplete. Malone remembers, and the cult seems to survive, so it's not fully eradicated. Um, but it is presented as a dream here in Chapter 7. Um, and some things are revealed about Sidem. So Sidem becomes like the scapegoat for all this that happened. Quote, Sidem was evidently a leader in extensive man-smuggling operations. For the canal to his house was but one of several subterranean channels and tunnels in the neighborhood. There was a tunnel from this house to a crypt beneath the dance hall church, a crypt accessible from the church only through a narrow secret passage in the north wall. The croaking organ was there as well as a vast arched chapel with wooden benches and a strangely filtered alter um, so when this is all revealed the police and the government just begin to fill in these canals and this is how they sort of try to destroy this marine conspiracy um, they put a bunch of the people in prison they just rounded up a bunch of the, the immigrants uh, who are somehow associated with this cult um, some of the survivors all put in jail um, the the center of the cult, this carved golden pedestal, is never found, so that's kind of hidden. Um, what else do we have here? The, the tramps, quote, the tramp ship and its crew remain an elusive mystery, so something got away. Uh, the, sh the, sh the ship that was involved in this human smuggling. Um, now, Malone blames the police for doing a bad job of actually rooting out every little bit of this conspiracy, like a cancer. Um, but anyways, um, Sidon's fate... It's a bit unknown. There seems to have been a no. There was no funeral for his death. Now the final paragraphs of the story, to the very end, the final three. I think it's the final three. Yeah, the final three are just wonderful uh, moments of despair for our author, for Malone, as the realization is that is that this Hydra, this cult, whatever Sidon was involved in, may have been snuffed out temporarily in one area, but. 
Its network is extensive. It covers the whole country, the whole Atlantic, perhaps the whole world. And it's still there. Um, he actually uses the language of the Hydra. I know I use it a lot because I'm influenced by that book, The Many-Headed Hydra. But Lovecraft here uses the term Hydra to refer to that. And of course, the Hydra mythology, as you cut off one head, two more grow in its place. Um, quote, Sidon came and went. A terror gathered and faded, but the evil spirit of the darkness and the squalor broods on amongst the mongrels and the old brick houses. The prowling bands still parade on unknown errands past windows where lights and twisted faces unaccountably appear and disappear. Age-old horror is a hydra with a thousand heads, and the cults of darkness are rooted in blasphemies deeper than the walls, well of Democritus. The soul of the beast and omnipresent and triumphant, and Red Hook's legions of blear-eyed, pockmarked youth still chant and curse and howl as they file from abyss to abyss. None knows whence or whither, pushed on by blind laws of biology, which they may never understand. For as the old, more people enter Red Hook than leave it on the landward side, and there are already rumors of new canals running underground to certain centers of traffic and liquor and less mentionable things. So... Uh, that leaves Malone feeling pretty anxious that this is not dead at all and it'll come back, which of course explains his nervous breakdown when he sees uh, a red brick building in, in, in Rhode Island. Now, I still think that it's not just the building, it's not just the architecture itself that, that panics uh, Sidem, I th or, or Malone, I mean. I, I think it's the realization that it's not just that, it's that this cult is taking root in Rhode Island as well, right? This cancer has spread. Um, and this goes way back. The final paragraphs also tell us that this cult is not new. It, it's not a product of modernity. Um, uh, he writes, Who are we to combat poisons older than history and mankind? Apes danced in Asia to these horrors, and the cancer lurks secure and spreading where furtiveness hides in rows of decaying brick. Um, it's interesting, brick as a sign of decay here. Uh, you know, bricks, like when a bank uses like bricks or stones to make their facade, it's like, we're strong, your money will be secure here. Look at this massive vault we have. In fact, they're, they're incredibly unstable, of course, which is why the government has to insure all the accounts, but they still present themselves as strong. You know, bricks have that strong feel, but Lovecraft sees that so much as a sign of decay in, uh, in this story, and, and I think in some others too. So, anyways, I love the horror at Red Hook. I think this is a, a really, really interesting story. One of my favorite Lovecraft uh, tales. Um, even though, yeah, obviously pretty racist and one of his most obviously racist. But I don't think it deserves the bad reputation it, it gets. I think it's, it's almost like a skeleton key to... To connect a lot of themes in other stories like we see the forgetting in other stories we see the immigrant stuff we see the, the cultic knowledge we see the sea in other stories but they all come together in this story uh really well and it all connects of course to his new york adventure so in the next episode which i hope you're not too frightened of new york now that you won't return to listen to my next episode where i'll be looking at lovecraft's second major new york story and that is he h-e he like like stephen king's it it's a story that's a little bit hard to search for uh but um that's just that's because of the nut title um but it's a nice one it deals with similar themes of 
the decline of New York, but it deals with it in a very different way. And um, and yeah, so I hope you stay tuned for another Lovecraftian adventure into New York as I talk about he in the next time. In the uh, as that's happening, as you're waiting for that episode to come up, please let me know what you think of the horror at Red Hook about my analysis of it, my thoughts of it on it. Uh, please listen to the SFF audio. Uh, discussion about the horror at Red Hook is a really great discussion. I cover some of these themes, but we also get the opinions of many other great uh, readers and thinkers of uh, Lovecraft and fantasy and, and science fiction fiction uh, sci uh, science fiction stories. Uh, a group I really adore being a part of whenever I can. So do go do go there and listen to them as well. And I'll see you next time as I as I talk about He by H.P. Lovecraft.